This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at home? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal from Lord Bohinen! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Whelan. Oh, what a goal from Noel Whelan. No power on it whatsoever. But Taibbi has made a horrendous error. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, he hasn't. No. Hello and welcome back to Quickly Kevin Will He Score. I'm Chris Skoll. Joining me, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And the man who's going to personally fly Stefan Schwartz to the moon, it's Michael Marden. Hello. Um, thank you so much for uh, bringing back up Stefan Schwartz. It's amazing when a new series starts. You said this, Michael. How have we got this far? <laughs> yeah. Like, la- this happened in the last episode. We got some correspondence about Stefan Schwartz's space claws. <laughs> Which sounds like that sounds like, like his hands. <laughs> Do you remember right. Stefan Schwartz's space claws? <laughs> It actually allowed him to climb higher when he was going for headers in space. <laughs> it's mad, yeah, like we haven't talked about this. has just come up. It took us six series to get deep enough to find out that Stefan Schwartz had a space clause. <laughs> in his contract. In his contract, to be clear. Yeah. <laughs> Players would go back from training at Sunderland. They'd have marks on the back of their neck. And they'd go, sorry, it was Stefan Schwartz's space clause. So we went for a ball. <laughs> right. Correspondence? Yeah. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Post Bag. You've got mail. Would you like more on the Steve Bruce saga or more on the Cobra from Gladiators saga? There is a question (laughs) that makes me delighted to work on this show. That absolutely sums up what I want to be doing with my career, and I mean that 100%. Is it a Sophie's Choice either or? or? No, I'll do both. Which would you like first? Uh, I would like Steve Bruce. The meat of Steve Bruce, please. Okay, so this is just a little extra detail that we haven't. I can't believe this hasn't come up either. Hi there, this is from uh, Darren uh, Ledley. Hi there. I'm not sure whether this has been covered before, 
But the chairman in Steve Bruce's legendary um, triptych of novels is probably... What's his name? Sir Lawrence. Sir Lawrence. Yeah, probably based on local Huddersfield philanthropist Lawrence Batley. Oh, OK, yeah, definitely is. <laughs> Give me some uh, things about Sir Lawrence. He had a business centre, didn't he, in his name? Yeah, Huddersfield has a theatre still named after Lawrence Batley, and during his first few years, Huddersfield Town's new stadium had a sponsored stand by Lawrence Batley. <laughs> yeah, definitely him. You can picture Steve at his desk in the Gal Farm John Smith Stadium, scanning the horizon, looking for inspiration for a name for his new masterpiece. Before thinking sod it and finding the first thing he sees. That is mad. I love that idea that... He was, <laughs> it's literally... That email kind of suggests that he was st- stood on the touchline managing Huddersfield, thinking about the books. <laughs> yeah. And then he's like, oh, I need a local philanthropist to be the club owner. Ah, Absolutely Lawrence. amazing. We must have said this before. You know the final scene in the Usual suspects, yeah. where all the things on the board yeah. are the story that Kaiser Soze has been telling it. That is what Steve Bruce's books are. They are just a collage of what he can see. <laughs> okay, this is from Jack, and it is a follow-on from the uh, Gladiators in Schools saga. On the subject of gladiators visiting schools, when I was at primary school, we had a visit from Saracen. Sadly, unlike Cobra, he wasn't on hand to sign us up for any current account or ISA, but to give us a talk and raise awareness of the dangers of playing on railway tracks. (laughs) Where's the money in that? The talk he gave to a whole assembly room of kids was loosely based on his experience as a fireman. Uh. With a short and, quite frankly, graphic for primary school video reconstruction of two kids playing on railway tracks and one getting electrocuted. With half of them traumatised and the other half in awe of this mountain of a man, he handed out stickers that had a picture of himself with the immortal words, Don't play on the railway tracks. (laughs) Strangely, and in a pretty intimidating tone, he said these words to each child as he handed them a sticker. (laughs) Like he's giving communion. (laughs) (laughs) Don't play on the railway tracks. Amen. Don't play on the railway tracks. Don't play on the railway tracks. (laughs) The icing on the cake... (laughs) Was at the end, as part of the applause and a thank you to Saras and the headmistress who clearly fancied him, inappropriately asked him for a fireman's lift, which he duly obliged in front of the whole school. Different time. <laughs> Different, Different time. time. I would absolutely love to see a sticker with Saracen saying don't play on the railway tracks that would make my year if someone's got one of them at home those public health warnings were so big in the 90s and they had so such a, they made such an impression on me that I'm still disproportionately scared of like getting a carrier bag on my head or a, <laughs> returning to a lit firework yeah, yeah. That's yeah. A or big pl- one. like I would playing on a railway line it's like even just those words terrify me the firework one is huge i was on holiday over the new year and they were setting fireworks off on the beach and all i had in my mind was those public service films. I was like, what yeah. are you doing? You're too close. You're too close. <laughs> was there, this is a do I remember this right? Wasn't there one per public service film about fireworks where one exploded in a kid's hand? <laughs> do you remember oh, that? Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, and you Why just hit a kid yeah, like, ah! Awful. We got lucky because in the 80s it was like nuclear war ones, wasn't there? <laughs> Like, like the sort of like duck and cover do, style. Yeah, like, like what to do in the event of a nuclear war. Yeah. Would you even have that in the West Country? Would they? Or a nuclear war? <laughs> yeah. They just take but then the no one's the, the Russia's not wasting a nuclear bomb on that. You're going to make sure you're you... probably going to get the whole UK, aren't you? Let's keep it like us. <laughs> <Let's keep> it... <laughs> <laughs> if you know, hello at QuinnyKevin.com. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Hi, Josh, Michael, and Chris. Listening to your Gillingham Town episode today. Given your disdain for the Keys and Grey double act, I thought this story might pique your interest. I attended the same secondary school as Richard Keyes' children, 
And one year, for the 1999 Summer Fate, he went all in. He organised a match between a Legends Eleven and a Sky TV's Dream Team. The Legends included Ray Houghton, Ian Dowie, once for this parish, Peter Taylor, Kevin Hitchcock, Martin Tyler, and, of course, El Capitano, Richard Keyes. <laughs> <laughs> and the match was played on the school pitch, and myself and two friends, who were in the sixth form, were given the easy task of officiating the friendly charity match. I refereed and quickly realised the atmosphere was not that of a typical school summer fate. Carl Fletcher et al. had roped in a few half-decent semi-pros who'd been extras on the show to supplement the actors, and the game developed a real edge. Tackles were soon flying in, and it quickly became clear that Dowie, Houghton, and in particular Hitchcock, who for some reason was playing out on pitch, were not turning up at a kid's summer fate without picking up three points. (laughs) (laughs) They were screaming at me for every foul thrown in corner, and the 17-year-old me was trying my best to keep order. With the teams locked at 3-3 and time ticking away, the legends had a corner. Keys jogs calmly over to me and says, I've organised this fucking day. I'm going to go down in the box. Make sure you blow the whistle. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking at the time... That keeping keys on side was a smart move if I ever wanted a future sports media. I gave the penalty for the most blatant dive you have ever seen. The dream team went ballistic. Luckily, Dickie K dusted himself off to calmly draw the penalty straight onto the crossbar. And out, and I promptly blew up for full time. From Ryan. So it's your keys to the penalty? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh what is a I don't want to go in too hard on Richard Keyes, but he is hilarious. Well, I, I mean, some of his punditry recently. There's an argument he's doing his best stuff. <laughs> he is hilarious. If you've <laughs> ever got any dealings with Richard Keyes, this is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, we come on to... It's our first ever commentator, which we're very, you were very excited by, weren't you, Well, Chris? we did have Mark Lawrenson, technically He's a co-commentator. A co-commentator. I always, I always see that as a pundit more than a commentator. <laughs> like, our first ever professional proper, commentator. Proper commentator. Yeah, you're very excited. Yeah, wonderful. Like, I think with commentators, I think they're very interesting people. You don't often hear them talk about themselves. It was a genuinely fascinating interview. Obviously, Clive provided one of our, well, you know, one of the catchphrases of 90s football, which uh, does come up. But we will discuss the interview afterwards. Why... Why bandy around the discussion of whether commentators talk? Let's just hear from Clive. Can I just say as well, his voice is pure velvet. Our guest this week, alongside the legendary Brian Moore, was very simply, and still is, the voice of ITV football. Lead ITV commentator for four World Cups, four European Championships, 17 Champions League finals, nine FA Cup finals. He's the four-times Television Society Sports Commentator of the Year. But most importantly, he's the man who talked us through one magical night in Barcelona. Welcome to Quickly Kevin, Clive Tildesley. Yeah, but I'm not happy. Why? Because Brian Moore was uh, a hero of mine. He was a friend of mine. He was a mentor for me. I succeeded him in the job. 
he is the late, great Brian Moore. And he's made one mistake, <laughs> one mistake in his entire career. And you plagiarise it, and now you're making money out of it. Do you want to... That's it. I'm gone. I'm, I'm going to stop you. Making money is a very big oh, thing. Well, you're lo- so you're losing money. <laughs> Do you know what? We've also got the quote wrong. That's the worst thing about it. So we went to record the title sequence. We looked at the commentary, and we've got it wrong. Do you remember hearing that at the time? Yeah, I guess. Um, fortunately, there wasn't too much of a gap between him saying, yes, he said, and then they both grow no together. <laughs> Very gracious of Keegan. <laughs> if there had been a kind of pregnant dramatic pause, then that would have made it yeah. even more difficult. I, I went back to ITV. I had four years at the B between 92 and 96. This is 1992, by the way, listeners. Um and, uh, and went back to ITV in 1996. And Brian Moore had already decided that he was going to kind of retire after the after the World Cup finals of 1998. And so I came in, obviously brought in to take his job, which in any circumstances, in any profession, makes the relationship slightly uneasy. But he didn't make it uneasy. He made it... He, he, he mentored me. I mean, I, Reg Guthrie was my great mentor, but, but Brian certainly helped me a lot in those two years. And um, when we sat down... Um, at his sort of farewell do. We both drank a bottle of wine and we sat next to each other and it was like one o'clock in the morning and he said, do you know, there's only two things you've got to remember. And I thought, oh, no, he's going to tell me when I'm drunk. I'm not going to remember <laughs> this in the morning. This is the doyen of my business. The man who had the warmth to relate to any kind of public, who could reach millions and millions, wasn't necessarily the sharpest with words or the smartest with one-liners, but just that guy that you trusted. And he said, there are only two things you've got to remember. I thought, oh, no, here we go. (laughs) He said, be warm enough and be on time. And and there was this sort of terrible sort of drop-off where I sobered up suddenly as if to say, it's fucking it. (laughs) (laughs) Is that it? (laughs) And a year, well, a best part of a year later, before... Um, my sort of name drop match, the the final match that I did at the end of the first season when I succeeded in, which of course was, sorry, everybody who hates Manchester United, was the 1999 Champions League final. Brian had a gig in Barcelona that day with UEFA. And so I had lunch with him on the day of, you know, the, the day of my biggest game, probably in my life. And um, I travelled to the stadium with him and, and he, Brian Moore, if I arrived four hours before, Brian always arrived six hours before. <laughs> it was always kind of belt and braces in that sense. And in the back of the car, he said, do you remember what I said to you that night? I said, yeah, I do, yeah. And it was particularly underwhelming, if you don't mind me <laughs> saying. He said, no, what I was saying to you was, I think you're good enough, but you're not going to be good enough if you're shivering and you're not going to be good enough if you ain't there. He said, that was all I could help you with. And... In many ways, it's probably the biggest compliment that anybody yeah. has ever paid me in my life. What he was saying was, yeah, you know, make sure you've, you've looked after the basics and you'll be fine because you can do it. This was the only job I ever, ever wanted to do in my life. And I got to do it. When you're a kid, do you want to be a commentator? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So were you like playing games and commentating and were you like... Yeah, yeah I think we all ran around the garden commentating. Yeah. But we? you must have... Were you not like, I'm good I at this? I was good though, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I couldn't play. And, you know, the charts that I prepare for games, I, my handwriting is 
absolutely magnificent. It's scary. <laughs> if you're a psychologist, you'd be very, very worried. You certainly wouldn't let me babysit your children. <laughs> but it's very, very neat indeed. When everybody says, you know, your handwriting is fantastic, I say, yeah, but I can't put shelves up. <laughs> and, and actually, I am fairly useless other than having, the hopefully, the ability to communicate. What you're remembered for is the guy who comes into your living room, into your pub, on, now onto your laptop, who you never meet, but you feel as if you kind of know him because he's talking football to you and you care about football and he or she cares about football. And that's the connection that the greats have. That's what Brian Moore had. Yeah. And, of course, Brian Moore had... He's going to flick one now. He's going to flick one. Well, How did he, he had, see yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, for that it... moment, he was the England coach, wasn't he? If only he'd... You know, <laughs> How did he see that? If only he'd spoken a bit louder, the people in the wall, <laughs> people in the wall might have worked out what was coming out. And, of course, Koeman shouldn't have been on the field. At the oh, oh, God. Oh, wow. Don't get us started on that one. That um, was... let's, let's go way past like the World Cup qualifiers for 94 and go to the 70s. You're a young reporter. You get assigned to Nottingham, right? Yeah. And, I mean, what a time to be a reporter for Nottingham Forest. Brian Clough and that great team of the mid to late 70s. Yeah, I, I graduated from university, from Nottingham University in 1975, and uh, there were about three media courses in the country at the time. I desperately wanted to be on one of them, but I didn't get on any of them. So I managed to get a job as a T-boy at, at one of the, the new wave of commercial radio stations. Radio Trent in Nottingham was, was a new radio station, and they took on two or three T-boys, two T-boys and a T-girl, if you like. I'd only just knocked on doors until the um, programme controller got bored of me and oh. and two weeks before my finals offered me a job um, as what they called a, a broadcast assistant, I think it was. But because it was a new radio station and because it was all hands to the pump, you got to do a bit of everything. And they very soon needed volunteers to cover football matches. I mean, that Nottingham Forest team, which I saw promoted won Premier League title effectively the following season and then the Champions League the season after that. And, of course, I was the same age as the players. So, you know, Martin O'Neill was my first great friend in football and remains a great friend. Your first break's your best break. It's it's the one that gets you in, it gets your feet under the table and that getting that T-Boys job at Radio Trent was the did, great break. Did you have much dealings with Clough? Yeah, every day. I, really? I, I covered Forest Home and Away. I mean, listen, you'll... Did he have an amazing... Well, you, you've, yes, he did. He was drinking. And, yeah. and I mean, you, your listenership would understand that... You know, I say that from my heart, that I, yeah. I cared a lot about him and, and people around him cared about him. But in, in 1976, 1977, we, we didn't tell each other anything, um, particularly blokes... And I don't think anybody ever stopped him. And that's kind of where he was at. He was unpredictable. There were two or three stories that I can tell you in terms of just looking after this guy who he bullied me. You know, that there was a kind of initiation ceremony. I've been through the same thing with Sir Alec Ferguson. You, you, you know, the biggest, two biggest rollickings of my life have come from Sir Alec Ferguson. But it's actually part of them trying to find out if you're going to be around. And we travel with the team then. We travelled on the team coach or in the private coach on the train to the game with the players. So they needed to find out that, that you belonged in that environment, that very special, close, almost secret society of within a football dressing room. And um, on balance, he was fantastic to me. But I can't pretend that every minute I spent with him was wonderful because he was an alcoholic. Yeah. Mm. What did he go at you for? Did it matter or did it... Was it... And did you think when it was happening... I know what this is, that this is something where I need to show my... Or was it just terrifying? Yeah, I was terrified. I mean, the start of my 
first season as as Nottingham Forest correspondent, they travelled. It was a second division championship game away in London. I think it was Orient or Fulham, but we travelled down to Euston from the station, and I was invited to travel with the official party. And um, it was a lovely August morning, as you can imagine. And if the train left at 9.30, I got there at 8.30. I was the first on the train. I had my ticket and I was sort of ushered into the uh, to the to the Nottingham Forest coach. He arrives 10 past nine, a club blazer tie. And I've actually got on the most beautiful button-down shirt, but I didn't <laughs> have a tie on. And uh, he he saw me and he said, young man, you're very, very welcome to travel with us today, but when you do travel with the official party, you do wear a tie. And I said, I'm very, very sorry, Mr Clough, I, it won't let happen again. He didn't move. He repeated it. I said, well, I'm very sorry. As soon as we get down to London, I'll, I'll get one straight away. And he repeated it a third time and pulled out a 10-bob note, which, you know, 50, 50 pence from his pocket, which bought a tie in 1976. And he put it in my hand and he said, train leaves in 10 minutes. <laughs> and I had to sprint out of the fucking station. <laughs> By the, this gent's outfit was just opening and uh, he had a tie rack and I just grabbed one Put the temp up note. I'm now sweating, and my lovely blue shirt has got great <laughs> Colin Montgomery sweaty. You know. And uh, he came past about half an hour into the day. He said, "Very smart." And it's just showing you who's boss, right? He's kind of. Do you know? Crazy. In 1994, at the World Cup finals, my first game. I was going for the BBC. Was in the LA Coliseum, which staged the final, and had no cover whatsoever. And it was, I don't know what it was, it, it was 30-something. And um, I was there in a shirt and tie. I had worn a shirt and a tie to every football match that I had covered from that point onwards. Oh, wow. And that day, I loosened the tie for the first time and undid the tie. Everybody else was there in a tennis shirt. But I almost looked up and thought, yeah, you got me, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting to hear this voice <laughs> bellowing from the cloud. Young man. <laughs> um, and is it right, so you grew up a United fan, but then did yeah. you switch to Nottingham then because Absolutely. of this time? I never honestly believed that, that, that I was home and away. That United did spend a season in the mid-70s in the second division and I missed about five games. That was probably my first year at uni. So, you know, I kind of could get to the games. And, uh, yeah, I, I, if if you told me as I joined Radio Trent, it, as it was, you know, my first job in 75, that it would fade away. But as soon as I got inside track and say these guys became my mates, I was watching my mates play. And inevitably in local radio, you want that team that you're covering to do well. Uh, I went to the 76 FA Cup final when United were famously beaten by Southampton. And that's probably the last real affection that I had for the club. So, yeah, I was total charlatan. <laughs> <laughs> there are certain people who have been fantastically helpful to me in in the course of become friends and I know their families and stuff. And as they move, my affections move with them. And similarly, there are three or four who I've just found very, very difficult uh, at best and when they move to clubs, I just want them to lose every game. <laughs> and one of them has managed Manchester United quite recently. <laughs> so um, we wanted to. You're our first commentator on here. We really want to kind of understand the process yeah, of commentator. Last, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so, like, how does it begin preparing for a match? Where do you start to write your notes? Where where do you start getting in the head for a commentating gig? Well. Reg Guttridge, who uh, some of your listeners probably wouldn't know the name, he, and sadly he's not with us anymore. He was ITV's boxing commentator. And for some reason he took a shine to me 
but he was hard with me. I mean, he really made me think outside the box. He would call me the morning after a game and you knew what was coming. Most of it wasn't wonderfully pleasant or, or it was very critical, but it was always trying to make you think about the art of communication. Know your audience, know the story, be strong editorially, be careful with words. And that may sound pedantic, that may sound oh, very commentator, but actually the language is so wonderful and so many people use it so brilliantly and I'm so in awe, you know, lyricists. I mean, even I'm not talking about Blake or Shakespeare. I'm talking about Guy Garvey, you know, somebody who just writes great words. And I am totally in awe of people who use words well. And even though commentators have a reputation for butchering the vocabulary, I would hope that I don't. I hope that I yeah. give more thought to, to the use of the right word. And even when I listen to commentaries back, which I do, you know, which is the only way you can learn, if a word is recurring or a word is being misused, then I try to correct it. So in a, in a sense, I'm not pompous enough to set myself up as some kind of teacher because all broadcasters are a, a matter of opinion. But how do I start my preparation? Yeah, I do all that stuff that you'd expect, all that factual stuff. But... Actually, what Reg taught me and made me think about, it's not doing the research, it's how you use the research. It's the editorial. It's, I mean, when I throw things at the TV, which I do quite regularly, I'm a real bitch when I'm watching other commentators. <laughs> it's because you, don't, you didn't need to use that. Okay, it's taking you half an hour to do that prep. Well, we don't have to hear it. You know, that is poor journalism. And we're journalists. That's what we are. That's what we're trying to do. Not the smart-ass lie, not can they score, they always score. Never mind all that stuff. That's luck. That's pure luck. It's actually getting the story, finding the words, and, and finding the information that illustrate That's what we are. We're communicators. And that's what Reg, the biggest message Reg ever gave him, the biggest rollicking he ever gave me was after the first England International I did. And he said, um, the England manager was in the stadium. This is the next morning on the phone. So the England manager was in the stadium, you know. I said, yeah, we got quite a lot of close-ups of him, uh, Reg. I think I might have referred to him once or twice. He said, well, why were you talking to him? And there was a silence from me and a silence at the other end. He says, was your grandma watching? I said, yeah. He said, well, she counts one viewer just as much as the most qualified coach. Talk to her. Yeah. Inclusive broadcasting. Welcome people in. Don't try to impress people. Don't don't commentate to the people who you're going to see in the dressing room corridor and say, hey, by the way, yeah, it's a good point you made about the offside. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, that stuff. We're broadcasting, you know, when you're fortunate enough to have an audience that we get for an England game on terrestrial television, BBC, ITV, 20-odd million at a World Cup, 30 million for the semi-final. There's a real argument for explaining the offside law at some stage because now you're broadcasting to your Auntie Anne and your Uncle Ernie yeah. who are going to watch three football matches a year. It's different when you're commentating perhaps on Sky and BT where you've got a million, two million at most, committed subscribers who are obviously football fans, then you probably are being a bit condescending if you're explaining the away goals rule. But when you're on terrestrial television, you do have to explain it. You and do. You have to include people. And how, when you're commentating and you've got this in your head, how conscious are you of what you're doing? How much is it instinct and kind of... Like, I know when I'm doing stand-up, for well, instance... Well, I was going to say, almost, I was going to say... I can almost... But you know when you're driving and you can drift off and you don't remember the last mile because it's instinctive? I can do that when I'm doing stand-up and I know the show. Do you find you... But can I ask you this? Do you have um, maybe a little 30 seconds in a stand-up routine 
where you, somehow you, you know you're switched off, you've either forgotten a line and you're kind of getting by, or you don't think you've delivered the last couple of gags particularly well. You've still got the audience with you. They're still laughing. But you almost have to say to yourself, Josh, put yourself together. Yes, Come on, yes, concentrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, we can do better than this. And I get those in every single game. There's a classic instance, which all of you guys, because obviously you kind of look at these things, um, we all have this line that we start the match with. We've all written a line for the kickoff. Because yeah. the first 30 seconds, everybody knocks you back to the cinema and goalkeeper and everything. So you script all that? Uh, well, yeah. It's or yeah, it's a few notes. And, yeah, it's there and it's setting up the match. Editorially strong. Give it a lot of thought. You know, try to, try to give it a sort of a bit of a build-up. You know, welcome in everybody. You've probably only just switched on. This is what it's all about. And, actually, if we get a goal in the first 30, 40 seconds as commentators, we hate it. <laughs> we've got it all plotted and schemed. And, we, you know, we chose and we spent all Thursday afternoon writing this opening line. And you go, oh, 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 oh hey, they scored, they scored. Yeah, that wasn't supposed. I haven't even got my co-com in yet. You know, <laughs> you know, can we re reel back? That wasn't supposed to happen. And actually, it does us good. We had a classic kind of email in where someone had heard, you know, the San Marino goal after eight seconds, and Jonathan Pierce was still having to do the. Ca what Capital Gold was sponsored by? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sponsored by sponsored by Tenant Super. Yeah, and yeah. San Marino. I wonder. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't a great moment for tenants, really. Not quite what they came for. To be associated with David Gaultieri's goal. What yeah. are your favourite kind of games to commentate on? Is it World Cup games when you know there's a big audience, or maybe a Champions League final, or? Do you yeah. get nervous for the bigger ones? I think it gets that way. Um, but we are now in this Twitter age. And the level, it's not so much the criticism. I don't mind the haters at all. It's what I call the vultures. It's the people who kind of circle above you during a game and say, did he just say that? Does he mean that? Isn't that? what? And, and the, the, your, your career can be over by the end of the yeah. game. You know, in 140 characters, your career can almost be over before you've even had a chance to defend yourself. And I can give you a couple of examples of that. Um, before the World Cup semi-final last year, which we knew was going to be a huge audience, and I am excited about that because, listen, you've got to be confident in yourself. And there's always a fine line between confidence and arrogance, particularly in the male species. <laughs> um, so you've got to have a, a confidence bordering on arrogance to want to broadcast to begin with. You know, you've got to... You've got to be pretty sure of your ground. And that, and I suppose in that, I say, you know, give me a, a five bricks and some mortar and I have no idea what to do. But in my little sphere, I am confident. And in the build-up to the kickoff, the, the producer that has worked with me for the last probably five or six major tournaments, who knows exactly how I behave, exactly what I want on the day, and we're all kind of creatures of habit, she said to me mid-afternoon, you don't seem very excited. And... Um, I am going to say exactly what I said to her. I said, I can only fuck up, Anne. There is nothing I can do tonight to enhance my reputation at all. Yeah. It's a terribly negative thing. And I actually apologised to her afterwards. I went and found her five minutes later and said, sorry, I am really looking forward to this. But the truth of the matter is, in 2019, there's nothing I can do during the course of that game where people will come away win, lose, or draw, thinking, hey, Clyde tells it was good tonight. But isn't that a commentator thing? I was thinking, like, researching this interview, like, if you have a really strong game as a commentator, no one notices. Uh, but you can have a nightmare and everyone will be talking about it. Isn't yeah. that like the commentator's curse, almost? Well, you know, it's very opposite to this podcast, obviously. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm only kidding. People might walk I, away from I, I know Clyde Tills is amazing. I know it's a fun thing for Brian Moore. Of course yeah. it is. But, I, you know, if, I'm going to really bitch now. If, if, you have, if you're sad enough... Go and get the tape 
of what Kenneth Wilson Holmes said after some people on the pitch are thinking it over. It is now. It's rubbish. <laughs> You, you know, you know, ITV man through and through. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Hugh, Hugh Johns. Hugh Johns was coming. <laughs> you know the Bedell and Skinner thing about Pelly is rubbish, and, yeah. and they have these fantastic clips of Pelly miscontrolling it. And, all, yeah. and it, again, it's fun. Like this, it's fun. But in actual fact, he got ten seconds, which just fell into his lap. But with that, I think there is a thing with commentator beyond that Kenneth Wollstoneholm thing, and like, but I think you do remember them for as a character. It's like, for instance, you go, I couldn't name you a bit of John Motson commentary, but everyone knows the character of John For Motson. those watching in black and white, Spurs are in yellow. Yeah. That's probably but, the classic. Uh, Crazy Gang Culture Club, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And Barry Davis And, and, got, and the Ronnie Radford the... goal was... Yes. Know, certainly the people of a certain age. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that fell into his lap because it was quite uh, early in his career and it was going to be the 18th match or match of the day and it became, you know, the main... And we get those breaks. I mean, I got... That break, obviously, at the end of the Champions League final, which was a particularly poor Champions League final, the '99 final yeah. was was really dreary, and and it was you know we were going to get the biggest sort of anti-climax, Manchester United on the verge of a treble and blow it, uh, and then you know suddenly these two goals come virtually out of nowhere, and I managed to get the correct score on each <laughs> When you said, <laughs> "Well, Manchester United score," they always do exactly can't remember yeah. exact words, and then they score. How much of you is thinking? That is absolutely brilliant for me. I don't... I, I, until you hear it back... And I do listen back, mm. however sad that is. I think it is the only no, way to learn. I think yeah. it really is the only way to learn. Um, so you're never quite sure how uh, how it's sounding. I mean, in many ways, I suppose if I'm remembered for anything that night, it is Anne Solskjaer has won it. Now, I broke the, the cardinal rule of commentary at that moment. Because if Bayern go down the other end and make it 2-2, and it goes to extra Come time... Come on! Um, well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, there was a game... Um, I did a big France-England game. Was it the start of Euro 2004 when Zidane scored twice in the last couple yeah. of minutes? Um, and I... Uh, yeah, Beckham missed the penalty and all that sort of stuff. And I did say with about five minutes to go that, you know, England are on the verge of a great... And, and I did say if... But, of course, that wasn't heard. And um, there was actually the Times ran a sort of um, reality show. You could vote commentators and pundits off each day. And I was the first to go, you know, for that. It was my <laughs> fault. <laughs> I was going to say, you said you've got a very particular ways. Do you have a very particular way your day will go when you've got yeah, a game? Yeah, you know, you'd have to ask the people I work with. I don't suffer fools, but I am a reasonably laid-back person to be around because I, I, I am always conscious of how lucky I am to do this job. And uh, and I, I never, ever lose sight of that. I want to get as much out of the way as I possibly can so that the last hour when the teams are announced and maybe I get a little curveball thrown at me, that I've got an hour to sort of take it in so I can walk slowly to the position so that I can settle down, make sure that all the sound and everything... Just so I can be that control freak for that hour. So if, for instance, the editor of the show says, oh, by the way... Um, Gabriel's got flu, you're interviewing Gareth Southgate half an hour before the game. It's almost like him saying, oh, by the way, half an hour before the game, we want you to run to John and Groats and back. You know, it's no, 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 no. I'm, I don't say that because he's my boss, but I'm yeah. thinking, no, that's my time. No, you can't take that off me. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. That's, this is my process. Yeah, I have now for three days been on a runway ready to take off. And you're suddenly standing in front of my plane and saying, oh, you need to get off, actually, and go back to the start again. No, I can't. So you do it, but it's a real interruption. And yeah. and, I, and I think we are all creatures of habit. If you looked at our charts, 
they're all different. There's no such thing as how you prepare for, for, for any game other than you're allowed to do it your way. When you're in a World Cup and the games must be quite racked and stacked, yeah. is it tough to kind of... Well, the, the, I mean, I, I talked before about um, the, the producer who has worked with me on the last whatever, how many tournaments, and, and she was an absolute master at not only organising our travel with, with our travel people so that we had plenty of time before the games, but particularly in the first two weeks of the World Cup when you want to try to see every single game, if possible... Uh, and poor old Glenn Hoddle or whoever's been travelling with me, we would have, for instance, a game on a Sunday night, and Monday morning the call would be 5am because we're getting the 7.30 plane. Well, we haven't got a game till Tuesday. Yeah, but Clive wants to see the three games. He wants to get there to see the three games that are going to be played that day. He doesn't want to be in the air while those yeah. three games are being played because that's the first look he's going to get at Bosnia, Herzegovina, whatever, you know. So I don't wear an anorak, but... I, I actually <laughs> I behave as if I were an anorak, but I do have procedure and yeah, and yeah, yeah, routine, and I don't like that to to be broken. I like to have time to prepare. And does your co-commentator need to plug into your routine a bit? Is, is, is Andy Townsend on your arm all throughout a tournament? Yeah, and and that relationship's important because you do spend so much time together, and some of it is in airports at seven o'clock in the morning when you've done a game the night before. Thanks, life. But sometimes we get two games in two days, and we've simply got to go at that at that time. So it is a personal relationship. You are spending an awful lot of time together in the back of cars and traffic jams and, you know, Brazil, Russia, huge traffic jams. But I'm also trying to school them through what I think they can bring to the broadcast. So I admire any co-commentator who does factual research. But going back to kind of Reg Guttridge and that stripping down the job of communication. What is your role as Glenn Hoddle, as Andy Townsend, as Jim Beglin, whoever? It is, you've been down there to the battlefield. You've done it. We'll never go there. It's your job to come back and find the words to tell us what it's like down there. You don't need to know how long they've been unbeaten at home. You really don't. It's much better if I control that. But what I need, we need you to be able to do is to tell us what it's like. And as a commentator who's never been there, it is a bit of a balancing act as to how much opinion you put into the commentary, really, because if you've got Glenn Holder sat alongside you, you commentate an England game, and he's managed England, then it, even for me to suggest, you know, the, the, the sort of some trite line, that like he'll be a bit disappointed with himself there or he won't need telling, it's actually for Glenn to say that, you know, Do, not for me. Does your co-commentator ever say something you think... I disagree with that but yeah can't. yeah and 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 some commentators you have a little bit more of a you, the, the the relationship grows and you get more confident and they can take you on a little bit and that's yeah. good i think that's yeah. good good broadcasting as long as you don't stop talking to each other altogether <laughs> i hate it when people say our oh, footballs are thick well they might not be educated but actually if you're around professional footballers they're bright their sense of humour, their banter, it's its harsh and hard and some of it you wouldn't want to broadcast, but it's actually part of their brightness, their cleverness, their street wisdom. They haven't got wisdom, but they've got street wisdom. And, and almost all footballers are not thick. They might be exposed as thick in an interview situation, but then... So would most plumbers and, you know, so would most nurses or, you know, life-saving doctors which might struggle in an interview situation. That's not what they've been trained to do. They've been trained to use these talents, these extraordinary talents. And this is the greatest meritocracy in our country. 
that the England football team... Hey, how many black players are there in the England football team? Answer, nobody's counting. Doesn't matter. No, nobody notices anymore because your only qualification for the England football team is to be good enough. And actually, when you think how many people, even in our country, let alone around the world, want to be footballers, want to be really good at football, and they are the very, very best. And even when they mess up, they have my utter respect for having reached that that level. I could have made a billion out of this business, but I can't buy my son into the England yeah. team. Yeah, as hard as you try. <laughs> <laughs> Um, want to focus a little more on that that night in uh, the Camp Nou in 1999, the night oh. that Manchester United won the Champions League. You mentioned your relationships with people in the game, and I think you, you mentioned that Sir Alex has had two massive goes at you uh, in, in a previous one life. in Barcelona, and one in Barcelona. So <laughs> tell me a little bit about that relationship with the kind of the managers in the game, and maybe Sir Alex on that evening. Well, if I had any kind of insight to offer into Sir Alex Ferguson, what made him you know, what he became, it was his ability to move with the times. He managed differently in 1986 than he did in the early 21st century when he, you know, he eventually packed in. And the very fact that he was able to deal with people like Cantona and Keane and then ultimately, the, the, you know, the first wave of new superstars in the game, I mean, it was Lee Sharp initially and then Ryan Giggs, you know, he, he had to be quite parental. And, I mean, I know from having parented that it is, it's a different process now to what it was when I was a young child and what it is probably, again, now if you, if you have young children, things have changed. And, and, and part of that evidence is itself when you're around old-school legends of the game and, and a lot of them who are on TV. And it is a fine line between, oh, the game's not what it used to be and, you know, you, 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 you can't tell people what you think anymore and everything's pretty... And actually moving with the times, accepting that it's changed, accepting that everything around us has changed. So, of course, our consumption of football and our management of footballers has changed. The money in the game has changed a great deal. You know, they're all classic sort of um, rhetorical question. What do you say to a dressing room full of millionaires when they're 3-0 down at half-time? How do you threaten them? You know, How do you motivate them? Where, which, which part of, of them do you try to appeal to? And Fergie and, and others besides, I suspect Wenger, they managed to do that over the course of probably three generations of footballers. And, and I think there was a big change during that period. So consequently, my relationship with Alec changed, you know, from being the fledgling new boy who actually came in, fortunately, with a recommendation from Brian Moore that I was OK and he trusted Brian. So I was brought in with a bit of a commendation. But nonetheless, the couple of times when I stepped I mean, literally half an inch out of line. And both of them were total misunderstandings. And whilst he never apologised, he did <laughs> accept that he was wrong to give me the rollickings later. Was it related to your commentary? Or? No, one was, in, in again, they were both long stories. One, in the pre-mobile phone age, Manchester United played at Halifax, who were 92nd in the league, in a League Cup tie at the Shea, and played poorly, but won. Jim Layton threw one in when he was under pressure. And Fergie had said that he wasn't going to do a post-match interview for the Granada Highlights programme. But my boss at the time, who knew him well, managed somehow to get a phone call into the office at Halifax. And because Manchester United were playing Nottingham Forest in a live game on ITV the following Sunday, he agreed to answer two questions on that rather than do an interview later in the week. So to our surprise, having packed up our microphones, he suddenly comes up the corridor. 
course, I haven't got the message. So I oh. weighed in with questions about Halifax. So oh. you're an effing chancer. And he, he, he stormed off. So that was the first one. And the second one was a ridiculous coincidence. Uh, again, sadly, somebody who's not with us anymore, um, Neville Neville, uh, father of. When Manchester United played in the new Camp in the group stage of the season, they won the Champions League. I had had a tip-off from somebody, again, somebody who's not with us anymore, Hugh McIlvaney, great, great journalist, because he'd spoken to Alec, and he told me that he was going to make a change and leave Phil Neville out, play Wes Brown, because Rivaldo was tall and he wanted Brown's height against him at right-back. Gary was playing centre-back that night. So, weirdly, I came back from the ITV pre-match dinner early, you know, to get to my bed, and I stepped into the lift with Neville Neville, and I don't know why I said it, but I said, by the way, Nev... If Phil doesn't play tomorrow, it's no reflection on him. It's just... And I don't know I just gabbled it out. And I didn't say I knew. Well, of course, he phoned the boys and Gary stormed into breakfast and said, Clive tells he knows the team and we don't. Oh. And so when I went for the lunchtime briefing with Bob Wilson at the hotel, he, he bawled me out in reception for oh. me. Oh! <laughs> oh. <laughs> it, did he say, how did you know the team? Or They just stormed right into me. Oh, yeah. oh, I don't never, think I'd recover from never that. Never talk to you again. I managed to do the game somehow. It was 3-3. Three, three. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and after a week or so, it, it died down and uh, he kind of... I think Alec probably realised that he'd told Hugh a bit too much about his team. Right, right. And that he'd gone in the paper. Um, end of that season, end of that Champions League run, that night in Barcelona. I mean, I would honestly say it's the best commentating performance since Kenneth Walson home. Oh, in terms of sound bites, you've got in there, can Manchester United score? They always score. Yeah, won it. Manchester United have reached the promised yeah, land. Yeah, have you heard the first goal that night? But didn't you get, it, you got it, got it wrong? wrong? I thought it was deflected. So, and, and with three minutes to go, biggest match probably of my career, you know, first Champions League. Well, it wasn't actually my first Champions League, first with an English team in it, first probably 20 million audience that I'd ever broadcast to. And it was 1-0 and I would got the goal wrong. <laughs> well done. But you must have known at the end of that game, I've smashed this. The only you thing I thought good. at the end of that game, and, and this is another interesting sort of comment which you can develop probably in future uh, podcasts, that I think in, in the Brian Moore era, probably through the 90s, which is kind of what this podcast is about, if an English team was playing in Europe, there was still an element of our boys. It was still an element of, come on, Forrest, come on. Well, we're talking about yeah, the 80s, yeah. I guess, now. They were still representing us. By the time we'd been kicked out and come back and started to dominate the Champions League again, it, it really was every City fan, every Leeds fan, every Liverpool fan was a Bayern Munich fan that night. <laughs> it had was. turned. And, and so as a commentator, you had to be aware of that. You couldn't suddenly give it and I wondered whether I'd gone over the top that night I always feel that for that one night and they played their first league game of the following season at West Ham Manchester United where they got absolute dogs abuse when they ran out to the field you know were you there? Yeah, was there yeah, yeah, yeah. good yeah. times yeah <laughs> exactly but I think probably just for that one night even as a West Ham you thought yeah, no, I did, I supported you thought, United then. on you go on you go. well maybe at the end go you've done it your way you know, the Schmeichel save in the semi-final, the Giggs goal in the semi-final, you know, seeing it through, coming from behind to beat Spurs in the final league game. Yeah, on you go. Enjoy it. Can Manchester United score? They always score. The big goal is coming up. Peter Schmeichel is forward. Can he score another in Europe? He's got one in Europe already. Peter. It's towards Schmeichel. It's come to wide draw. Clear. Gates with a shot! Champions! 
this is their year. They must be playing defensive. Schmeichel's not coming up for this one. Is this their moment? Beckham. Into Sheringham. When you've got a game like that, because obviously the players go off to celebrate, do you get involved? Like, not, not what do you now. do to come down from a game like that? Uh, well, I, we are a team, and, and I, I do... When I say I love the people, I haven't loved them personally, not all of them, certainly. I never, I've never slept with Adrian Charles. Can you hear that? <laughs> Glad to clear that rumour up. Um, I do enjoy the camaraderie of the people that I work with. And actually, the, the, the privilege, and it is still a privilege, to sit down after any game until two o'clock in the morning with Ian Wright and Roy Keane and Glenn Hoddle and Lee Dixon and just hear them bantering together and hear their take and their stories. Because I am still, you know, I'm still the fan who got to yeah. hold the microphone and 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 that, that never goes. I never know better than them. I might now be confident enough to say, are you sure? But I am still... I am still David at the feet of the elders when I'm when I'm among these people. You say Roy Keane there. How scary is Roy Keane? Yeah, I I didn't know him at all when he was a player, and um, I have got to know him very well over the course of the last three or four years. Um, working alongside him, travelling with him, he is fascinating. I like him a lot. He's self-effacing, which is probably the the last thing you would expect. Yeah. He can call himself. He gets what he is. Yeah, know? absolutely. Slightly insecure. i tell you a couple of lovely stories, which um, I don't think he'd mind me repeating. There's always that thing when people, you know, we are now in the selfie age. It used to be an autograph, but now, of course, it's a selfie. And it is more intrusive for these guys. It really, really is. I, 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 was, I remember walking to our studios in Moscow with Giggs and Neville and a couple of... And Ryan Giggs had it off to a T. I mean, people would come up alongside him and he would take the phone out of their hands, take the photograph and give it back to them without breaking the conversation he yeah. was having with us, which is maybe a little bit rude, but actually so it's rude just to come and walk alongside you in the middle of a conversation. Yeah. So they, they have learned to do it, except Keno hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and when Keno gets asked for a selfie, I have been with him when he has said to somebody, what do you want it for? So, well, so I can tell my mates that I've met you. Well, wouldn't they believe you if you just told them? I mean, do you lie to them a lot? And <laughs> we are all saying, Kino, we could have had this done by now, you know. But that's Roy, you know. Yeah. Well, well, why do you want to photograph with me? Uh, <laughs> but occasionally we get people to come up to him and, and get involved in a conversation and he humours them and starts and he says, and they say, oh, you, you're such a hard man and everything. And it, he'll always say, I could play, you know. And it's interesting. I, I see it sometimes with Graham yeah. Sooners that there is that sort of, oh, you, you, you put a few away, didn't I could play, you know. Yeah. I wasn't bad with the ball too. Yeah. And that's that that little bit of competitive edge yeah. is still there. They're all absolutely fascinating and when they come together and they mix and match with their stories and their personalities and it it goes back a little bit to what I said before about footballs are not thick. They're really yeah. not and they grow as sports people during the course of their career. You get to a 30-year-old footballer whose legs are, won't quite do what they want and they have to think about it a little bit more and they have to take more on board. And that, and that's when they really, the pennies really do start to drop. And they're, they're even more interesting when they get to that stage. Yeah. It's great to be around them. It's a, 
absolute honour. Yeah, I bet. And one of the perks of the jobs must be going to... So you've been to four World Cups, four European Championships. I've been more than that, actually, but yeah. Uh, like, what was the best one? What was the oh. best for the camaraderie? Do you have a single best night out of your career? Because I'm a commentator and because we are what we are, I am pretty good at recognising when I'm having too much to drink and stopping. I remember I was... Did the thing where I watched an England game was with Adrian Childs, and it was quite recently. It was like, God, it's amazing, Gareth Southgate. Last time I was at a World Cup with him, he was just getting really hammered in the hotel with us. He's everything you would hope he would be. I really enjoy the company of nearly every footballer I've ever met, um, on one level or another. But the great news about English football at the moment is that arguably the most important man and on the playing side anyway, the, the national team manager, is not a front. He is that yeah. man. He is absolutely everything that you see. He is that, that intelligent, measured, inquiring, modern man. And, and, by the way, competitive too. We're in good hands. Yeah, good to hear. Exciting, We're fascinated on this podcast with video game commentary. And you've been in that game for a long time. Ex. I think you did Championship Manager I've been 2. Uh, this <laughs> yeah. is football, Premier League stars, and then, of course, yeah. the FIFA series. Now, how does a, a commentating day work on those games? It sounds like you could be just sat in a room saying Wales in five different intonations. You got it. <laughs> Is it tough? Wales. Wales! <laughs> it's, Is it a uh, tough gig? It's as hard as I worked. <laughs> I, when I took over the gig from Motti, our kids were just at FIFA playing age. So probably... Um, and I think the people at EA would say this. I was the first English language commentator who kind of got the importance of this gig. I mean, certainly during the period, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer involved with FIFA, but during the period I was, I think I was as whatever the word is, well known for the, being the FIFA commentator as I was for being an ITV commentator in an era when ITV had all the Champions League and all the England games and stuff. So I got how important it was to get it right. And... Um, it's made in Vancouver. I don't even. It's made, the, the game's made in Vancouver. They fly you out. No, we record it in in Wardour Street in the central London, and um, it used to be uh, five days of eight hours. And <sighs> oh. but but the the big thing that I did was I said this this script has been written by North Americans, and we had goaltender and you know all kinds of nonsense. You know, I mean the uh, burst the onion bag and everything. It's fine once. But because I knew that the guys would play five games in a morning and so you would burst the onion bag every 20 minutes, <laughs> you would very quickly... So w what I preached to the to the people who made the game, and this was at a time when there was a feeling that the gameplay was better on the other game, which is Pro Evo. Pro Evo. Evo. And, and that actually, it was only really the licensing and the fact that they had all the players and the teams that kept FIFA where it was. So the, the two th messages I went in is one... I know from my son, you need to improve your gameplay, which they did, and, and it became did the best... Did you say that? Yeah, yeah, became the best game to play. And secondly, that the soundtrack is just... It's rubbish. It's 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 Alan Park. I mean, you really need Steve Coogan in. You don't need me. <laughs> what, what you need, very much like television, this is a visual medium. And, you know, my take on football commentary, television football commentary, has always been that if you walk into um, an Indian restaurant you're not actually listening to the the music as long as it is kind of vaguely Indian. But if you walk into an Italian restaurant that plays Indian music, you think, why? Well, I can't eat. I'm sorry. Is it, you know, I'm going to have indigestion listening to that music. I'm trying to, you know, where's the old accordion player? You know, you need that. So in actual fact, as 
as commentators, that's all we are, as television commentators, and that's what we needed to be times ten, because you can play ten games in an hour. So, Did you change the script then? I totally rewrote the script. And so when they sent me the scripts, I spent an awful lot of time rewriting them, to, to their satisfaction. But I, it was all understated, and, and it was all more credible, it was all more authentic. And How um, big are these scripts? They must be thick oh, things. Oh, there were gameplay scripts, which... I kind of did myself out of a job in the end because the, the contract stipulated that anything I recorded belonged to them, didn't belong to me. So when they had enough gameplay from me, actually they didn't really need me for more than a day or two <laughs> just to do some names and to do some intros. So that five days that I used to get became three, became one, became half a day. Yeah, we just need you to do some, you know, good afternoon from the Maracanã. Oh, <laughs> a VAR check. Well, well, yeah, I didn't even get that far, <laughs> sadly. Um how it works is, I would always explain it like a family tree. So you start with, um, not the father, you start with a corner kick. And then it branches out to a short corner and a long corner. And then a good short corner and a poor short corner. And all the time, oh, really? you, you're working in layers of bits of commentary, half phrases, that all, all of which, when you get down to the fourth layer, will all fit to any part of the third layer. And actually, by the time I was doing FIFA... We tended to record all of the match options, so we really would do a whole morning on... And so it finishes here, Costa Rica 1, Neptune 2. So it finishes here, Costa Rica 1, Neptune 3, right up to Costa Rica 1, Neptune 14, and and so on. And then I would start to programme the, the days so that all the shouty bits that we did, all the goals and stuff, would come in short bursts so that... You, because otherwise, your voice by the from Monday morning to Friday afternoon was totally different. And you could hear it on the game because it, it was as hard as you could work. I couldn't do a game on the Saturday after a FIFA week because my voice was totally wow. wrecked. <laughs> and God, then, I thought it would be like an easy gig, but no, it sounds like... No, it's... Do you have to have breaks? How long oh, are you in there for? absolutely, yeah. Yeah, oh, no, you really need breaks and you drink a lot of water. <laughs> um, well, our final question is always, if you could press a button and go back to the 1st of January 1990 and relive those glorious years all over again, Clive, would you? I love life. I have been so fortunate in, in my life, not only to do the job that I do, I'm in love with my wife, which is quite unusual at 65 years of age, <laughs> totally in love with my wife. I have um, uh, four wonderful children. I am now approaching... Have <laughs> you got any violin music? I am approaching <laughs> a time in my life. just lost my father this year, who he was 94 and stuff, which gives you a chance, you know, when you the genes and everything. Um, but I am reaching a stage of my life where I'm having to start to think, how much longer will I be able to do this? And that is what makes you want to go back and do it all over again, because it has been... Such a blast. I hope it continues to be a blast. There are lots of things that I still want to do. I mean, you know, World Cup semi-final, whatever it was, 30 million and England didn't win. I, You know, is that as close as I'm ever going to get? I suppose the ultimate of calling your national team in a in a major championship. Maybe not. Yeah, maybe, maybe it'll happen. But uh, I am starting now to not... I, I, I'm intent on smelling the flowers and taking it all in and enjoying every second of it in case it doesn't come around again. Um, so, yeah, there's, there were lots of great, great times during the, the, the 90s, but it, it's more that I would love just to be able to do this for another 30, 40 years. I mean, I'd love to go back to the start of 1990 just to continue. 
Wonderful. Brilliant. Clive Tildesley, thank you. That was Clive Tildesley. I love that. That's one of my favourite ever interviews we've done. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Genuinely, within the first uh, the first ten minutes, I thought he was going to punch me. <laughs> <laughs> Could you feel the tension, listener? This well, I, I, I loved that. I loved that he set his stall out to attack from the off. Yeah, I know. And then and then it was just it was so fascinating. It's like he put in a reducer tackle early doors. Just let us know. Exactly. Let Win, us the know yeah. Win the first ball. Win the first ball. Yeah, I, I, got, your I, got, man. I got lost in his voice. There was a period of about 20 minutes where I was just completely hypnotised. It was like the demon headmaster, wasn't it? <laughs> 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 I feel like that's the second game. time that's come up. Isn't it, really? I'm sure it's come up more than <laughs> um, Now, Michael, the quiz. Yeah, it's time for the end of episode quiz. Uh, Chris and Josh face off against each other to decide who picks the song that plays at the end of the show. And in honour of our guest today... We've already done the Champions League final in 99 in an earlier series. So for this game, we're going to roll back one round and it's Manchester United's iconic victory against Juventus in the semi-final, 21st of April, 1999. Chris, would you like to pick first? Alessandro Del Piero. What? Come on, mate. Incorrect. Oh, mate. Not even on the subs bench, so presume he was injured. Roy Keane. Correct. Paul Scholes. Yeah. Come he on. Booked. He gets booked. Yeah. It's got to be. He comes on as a sub and then gets booked. Oh, so you have to go again. <laughs> oh, that's a kick in the teeth for Scholes. Uh, Dwight York. Correct. Andy Cole. Correct. Dennis Irwin. Correct. Gary Neville. Correct. Peter Smichael. Correct. Yap Stamp. Correct. Ronnie Johnson. Correct. Filippo Inzaghi. Correct. Oh. Uh, before. <laughs> no? Not at that point. Shit. Luigi probably still a Palmer at that point, but incorrect. That's it, man. That's a, yeah. <laughs> Win for Josh. <laughs> Who's in goal? Shall have a go? Yeah, Perutz in goal. Correct. Uh, Conte? Yep. Um, I would say this is one of the best ever midfields in world football. Conte? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Zidane? Zidane, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Didier Deschamps. Edgar, oh, Edgar Davids. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. The other players. Uh, Angelo Delivio. Pesotto, Birindilli, Mark Giuliano and Ciro Ferrara. And then for Manchester United, I think you'd only missed Nicky Butt and Jesper Blomqvist. So, Josh, you get to pick which song plays at the end of the show? I think I'll go with Barcelona by um, Freddie Mercury and um, the person he did it with. Robbie Slater, see you later. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong. 
But these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.